Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. You most likely have seen it over the past couple years. Your old friend from high school sharing that link that shows a new secret way to prevent COVID-19 that ended up being an ad for modern-day snake oil. Yes, health misinformation exploded over the course of the pandemic, overwhelming governments, public health authorities, and social media platforms looking to fight it. A new study looked into how well health information is researched by those institutions and the methods they use to fight it. One of the study's authors is Stephanie Friedhoff, professor at Brown University School of Public Health. She talked with Federal News Network's Eric White. So a while ago, we started looking at misinformation, COVID-19 misinformation research to try to understand what lessons we could learn from all the interventions that were applied during the pandemic and those that were actually studied so we could see what worked and what didn't. We wanted to uh, create an evidence-based playbook for practitioners to understand how to deal with health misinformation. We found around 50 studies that researched this uh, with real participants. We excluded things like studies that were modeling this because we really wanted to see uh, the impact on on people in um, those types of situations. And we learned that out of the 50 studies that we found, so misinformation remains a leading challenge, especially health misinformation. And we thought we should look at the research that's available especially studies that were done during the COVID-19 pandemic, when a lot of interventions were fielded and new things were tried to understand what can we learn from them? How can we get better at responding to health misinformation? And um, how do we know what works and what doesn't? Gotcha. When look- so what types of intervention methods did you find that most you know, public health authorities were using and were any of them even effective? So to our surprise, we found that a lot of these papers used such different outcome measures and such different ways to look at the challenges that by and large, we couldn't really compare the evidence. There were 50 studies which used like 47 different ways of of looking at the pie. Uh, We looked at, for example, the misinformation that the studies put in front of people and it was very different. Some Some studies looked at, you know, Misinformation such as gurgling with salt water will prevent you from getting COVID or curing COVID and others shared full-blown conspiracy theories. So it was hard to compare that evidence. We did find some evidence for interventions that are called debunks. So after an, an item has been put out that is clearly wrong, efforts to uh, debunk that information in certain contexts will make people less likely to uh, believe in the accuracy of that content. And then also accuracy prompts or nudges. These are ways in which people are asked to assess a piece of information. And after that are shown different types of misinformation. And the studies show that people are then less likely to believe in the accuracy of such content when they've been prompted previously to think critically about content. Yeah. Is there a big push from a lot of health agencies in dealing with this problem? Because it's, you know, you don't get into the medical field usually thinking about, oh, this is how I have to convince people not to listen to things that are definitely not good for them. Well, one key outcome of our study was that only 18% of the papers we could find on this topic actually measured any public health-related outcomes. 
such as intend to vaccinate or self-reported mask wearing or intend to pay for an unproven treatment. If we don't study the impact on public health, then we also won't know what works in public health. What is clear is that not enough people from the public health world, both experts and practitioners, are included in the design of these types of studies. Responding to health misinformation has become a major part of working in public health. People were not trained for it. It is really a crisis that exploded during the COVID-19 pandemic. And people had to learn on the fly. There have been reports of worker burnout because of this. Uh, there's a lot of efforts going on to try to in increase capacity, to try to help people navigate these types of situations. It's been particularly challenging when you are a local public health practitioner and uh, you go to hearings and meetings, as you should. You want to be in community and emotions are high around these types of issues. So there's a, a large and growing need to both support our public health practitioners as they take on this extra additional challenge that is really hard. And also for everybody who works in public health to play a role in cleaning up our information spaces. Yeah, can we discuss the big part of this, which is just the advent of social media? Um, you know, back in the old days, all they really had to combat was you know, ads in, in trademark publications and things like that. But now you've just got so many voices that are into the realm of public health. Um, what effect did the social media platforms have on these studies that you looked at? So the challenge with social media platforms is that many of them don't share their data. So we need to understand that a lot of these studies were experiments with people as opposed to watching what works and what doesn't or what is playing out on social media in real life in real time. We don't have good enough data often to answer those types of questions. It is very clear that the world has changed dramatically from when we had a few very curated information sources to this wide world where everybody has a voice. And in general, right, we all know that's that's a good thing. The social media companies now have a responsibility uh, as this is common infrastructure. This is this, this information space this is a public good that we share. And we're really in the early stages of adapting to this technological change and trying to find uh, ways to understand it, understand the harms regulated, as we know, there's a, a, there's a lot of conversations in a lot of countries going on about how to best do this. But social media is the new place where most people get their information. We now have a generation that doesn't Google necessarily to find information. They search on TikToks and other platforms that they use. And those are important changes that we need to understand when we try to meet people's information needs when we try to get good information to where people are actually making sense of things in the world. Yeah, and that provides a nice segue into what is the main takeaway, which is that as the avenues for misinformation get more diverse, the ways to combat misinformation also have to get more diverse, and so do the studies that look into misinformation. So what does that mean by making the studies more diverse? What did you all have in mind with that? Well. Um, our study looked at what our study also looked at what types of delivery mechanisms did the different studies use to um, share the misinformation? Was it text only? Was it text and a picture? Was it 
audio? Was it video? And what you learn when you look at that is that we're mostly currently studying uh, text and uh, maybe image-based misinformation, but we're not studying video-based misinformation. Only 6% of all the interventions that we looked at uh, used video formats at all. Given the, the rise and the prominence of video and the, the increasing amount of video-based misinformation that's out there, there's a real need to improve our, our ways to look at this. More broadly speaking, we really don't have good science right now to understand how misinformation truly impacts people. You could look at this the same way we look at a novel disease when it first comes out. You, you know it's there and it's creating some impact, but you don't know exactly for whom and how and in which ways. And that is where our research needs to become much more granular and become much more elaborate. Uh, we need to invest in this type of research. We also currently have a, a gross underinvestment in this type of research. Doing this work will really also help us overcome some of the politicization because people are worried about censorship and you know who who's who decides what is misinformation and what isn't. And by being able to better articulate what the impact is on people, we believe uh, we can also overcome some of these current challenges that come from just you know not knowing exactly what is going on. And that's a real important part when you were specifically talking about, you know, government run health agencies, just because, you know, the leadership can change on the whim of an election or an election cycle. So, yeah, the, the depolitization of health information is definitely key. Is there a way to, you know, put the toothpaste back in the tube with that one? Because it seems as if it's becoming, you know, a more segmented section of what a certain political party believes and what another one believes when it's really just health information. It's not, it doesn't matter what side of the aisle you're on, right? Yeah, I do believe that government communicators and scientists all want to be humble in looking at this challenge. And we have seen this in the pandemic over and over. When we present a sense of over certainty, then we get into trouble. And a good scientist knows that evidence can change, especially on a, on a novel subject. So we need to really distinguish established health information from things that are still in flux and where we don't know enough. Most people don't understand the difference between matured science or matured evidence and cutting edge science where we're just discovering things. It's really important for everybody who's communicating in this space to make the difference very clear. Some things we know for sure, we know that vaccines work and how, and we can explain that. And some things we're not so sure. We may have a new vaccine and we're just testing out how it is working and on which populations and those things need to be very clearly shared with the public to maintain trust. One thing we should be mindful of, both as researchers and as communicators, is that as long as we don't have a strong evidence base that shows us how and when misinformation is impacting people and their health behaviors, we want to be mindful and not overreach in claiming such, um, such impact. Stephanie Friedhoff is a professor at Brown University's School of Public Health, speaking there with Federal News Network's Eric White. We'll post this interview along with a link to her study at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. 
Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you, great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected, and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences and that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across 
org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, and we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're gonna go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when as a leader that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency and I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm gonna go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I wanna hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped, and I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so... That was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to 
very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer and I think it's my dream job really to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're gonna become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with a intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going? Um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because 
first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career. And that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank you. Uh, having known you now for seven or eight years, um, and work alongside you. Uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues. It's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.